Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So this is another Torah study in which we're going to focus on one verse and not so much on the surrounding story. Um, we are in Egypt where Moshe has confronted Paro and has demanded, Shlach et Ami, send forth my people. Send out my people. And uh, Paro, of course, has said, no, thank you. Not interested. <laughs> Who, who's this Yote Buffet that I should listen? And what I have nothing to do with this God. Forget about it. Not going to happen. So, um, so that, that happened last week. So, uh, and we had, of course, Moshe, uh, and, uh, Aaron. They have their staff and it becomes a serpent that, that takes on and eats the other magician serpents. And there's lots of interpretations about what's actually going on there, um, with what the serpent represents. And so Yudhevavhe's serpent eating the other serpents has a lot of meaning in Egypt, the kind of representation of the god of Egypt. Whether you think snake, whether you think crocodile, some people want to think, say it's a crocodile. Some people want to say it's a snake. Either one um, is a god in Egypt. Um, and so this is about right Yudhevavhe devouring the symbol of the god of Egypt. So so the ten, the plagues are laden with meaning that we don't tend to. To read into them. So this week we have the continuation of that. Then we have um, we have the continuation of the plagues, and then we have uh, the commandment about the se about the lamb. So let's let's look at what a little bit of what's going on here. So we're going to turn to chapter eleven um, of the book of Exodus. So this parsha begins bo el paro, come to paro, and you're going to tell Paro, so if you're at home getting dizzy, don't worry about it. Um, I'll stop in a second. Or maybe not. Okay. So here at chapter 10, Bo El Paro. Don't, don't worry about it. I'm just, it, it's on the screen and I'll read it. I'll read just a second. And then we're going to go to verse 9 of chapter 11. Vayomer Adonai Moshe, Bo El Paro. Come unto Paro. Um, because I've made Paro's heart heavy, right? And hard. And, um, this is also that it's George's favorite part of Torah. This is also that I can put my signs and wonders like to make those happen. And so, so that's how the parasha begins. Bo el paro, come unto Pharaoh. And there's a lot of commentary. Um, we've done that a few years. A lot of commentary on why does it say come to paro and not go to paro? Any ideas? Think as, think as the rabbis think. Think as a spiritual message of Torah beyond the shot, beyond the literal meaning. What is Bo El? Why does it say Bo El Paro? Come unto Pharaoh instead of go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the God. The Pharaoh's within us. I Pharaoh is right here. I come to Jesus. Don't think, <laughs> don't think it's out there. Don't think you're, the evil, the crazy, the violence, the oppression, the whatever is out there. If you want to deal with that, you're going to have to bo el paro first. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to come unto Pharaoh within you first. There's not a way to deal with what's going on out there until we address what's going on in here. Um, 
Right. So, and lots of other ways of interpreting that kind of message um, of coming that, that we, we have to address our own heavy heart, our own hardened heart, our own anger, pain, fear, hurt. We have to address all of that first before we can be a leader, before we can address anything that's happening out in the world in any kind of constructive, helpful way. Okay. So lots of commentary like that. Um, then, um, so then we, we go on through our Parsha. We're going to come to verse nine, where God says to Moshe, Pharaoh will not hearken to you in order that my portents may be many in the land of Egypt, right? So that God can bring all of these signs um, to, and wonders and miracles to happen. But Moshe and Aaron had done all these things in Pharaoh's presence and yod had made Pharaoh's heart strong-willed and he had not sent the people of Israel from his land. Okay, so we're in the middle of this whole drama and in the middle of this drama, what do we get? Verse 1 of chapter 12. And God says to Moshe and Aharon in the land of Egypt, saying, and this is the verse we're going to focus on. And I know you're going to be like, wow, yes, of course, because this is so exciting. This month, Lachem Rosh Chodeshim is to be the head of the month. Rishon Hu Lachem it shall be the first to y'all of the month of the year. Okay, so that's where we're going to focus our commentary and attention this morning. Okay, all right, because I know that that's the verse y'all would have picked. Dabru el kol adat Yisrael lemor, speak to the entire community of Israel. So we get this business of this month is going to be the beginning of months for you. Speak to the entire community of Israel, saying what. What's going to happen? A commandment now about on the 10th day of this month. Notice that this month is not named. There's no name for this month because in the Bible, there aren't names for the months. Why aren't there names for the months? Why don't we, why not just tell us the name? We have a Hebrew calendar. Why don't, why don't we? Don't they talk about this certain day of Elul somewhere? Well, no. Not in Torah. On the tenth day of the month. Do the rabbis give the month names? So Bert is on the right track. After the destruction of the temple, where did the Jews go? Babylonia. Babylonia. Huh. The names of the months that we have are Chaldean. They are Babylonian. They are not biblical. So the only place we see names given for months is in the later writings that are post-exilic. So in we get it in Esther, and we get it in Daniel, and we get it in those texts that are post-exilic um, and that are not based on other texts. We have, a, we have editing of our texts that is post-exilic, but the texts that are written post-exilic, Babylonian exile, when they reference months, they have the names that we are familiar with. Are they using the names from the uh, Babylonian world? Yes. They're using the Babylonian calendars names for the months because biblically we just have the first month, the second month, the third month, right? So, so that leaves room for interpretation about which is the first month. 
right? It leaves a little wiggle room for which exactly is the seventh month because they're not named, right? Okay. So what we know is the first, the first month, it's, it's going to be in Aviv. It's going to be in the season of spring. But the rabbis, of course, have inherited the new year starting in the fall. So you can't have a contradiction, God forbid, right? That's not going to work. So the rabbis have to harmonize these two realities of the, the new year beginning in the fall. But the first of the months is happening in the spring. So we'll look at a few commentaries about how they get very clever about that. Um, um, but so, so what's supposed to happen on this, in this month that the, on the 10th day of this month, everyone is to take a lamb, right? By their family, their clan's household. And if there are too few in the house to eat a whole lamb, because that's a lot of meat, yeah. right? Um, then you're to join together and go to the next household and, and you do that together. So however many you, you get together to eat a whole lamb, it has to be, of course, without blemish, right? From the sheep and the goats are you to take it and it shall be for you in safekeeping, safekeeping. Very, very interesting language there. If you, for safekeeping, you shall, you'll show, you'll keep it. You'll watch over it till the 14th day of the month. Then they're to slaughter it. The entire assembly of the community of Israel, Ben Ha'arbaim, in the twilight time, in the in-between day and night. So every house of Israel is to, or ancestral house, so every clan is to take a sheep and put it in the backyard on the 10th day. And it stays there for four days. And then every house at this twilight time slaughters the lamb at the same time. So anyone's have anyone seen the silence of the lambs? A movie one cannot unsee. So if you haven't seen it, I don't recommend it because you can't unsee it. I have never shaken it. Um, But that, but that, that scene, right, of the sound of the lambs screaming, right, at slaughter. So that that is the image of what's happening at twilight. Twilight is already a very tricky time. It it makes the rabbis nervous. That's why we have so many rituals that happen to carry us through liminal spaces, because liminal time, liminal space makes everybody nervous. It's not day. It's not night. Right. Um, so so that is when this ritual is happening. It's also a, it's we have these rituals because it's a scary time. You're in between status of day and night, child, adult, single, married. You know, like all of these in betweens are are very they're very tricky. And so they're scary. And so this scary ritual is happening at the scary time as a scary thing is happening in Egypt to the Egyptians. So all of this is going on, right, to make this crazy picture of this crazy um, 14th day. And then they're going to take that blood and we know what they're going to do with that, right? They're going to put it on the two posts on the lintel in the houses in which 
they eat it. Right? This is what happens with the slaughtered lamb. All right. Hang on one second. Jody has a question. Jody, you want to say something? And then we'll go to David. So the neighbors, when it says share one with the neighbors, they might not be Israelites, right? Or, or did all the Israelites live together? Presumably the Israelites lived together. Okay. Um, you know, so the, in other words, or if, if the person next to you was not a Hebrew, then you wouldn't call, you would go across the street to the Hebrew Right. And bring them in. Okay. But presumably slave populations, right, live together. Um, but there's some indication that there were Egyptian households in between. Um, cause when we get the plague of darkness, right, it, it, like it seems that it's pervasive, but in the Israelite homes, there was light. I mean, so it's this. Okay. Uh, and then when the, the destroyer comes through, so there's some indication that there might have been some Egyptian households there, but, but presumably slave populations lived together like right. a ghetto like a ghetto yeah exactly yes i just want to point out as someone who's been off farm with my kids when you take the animals and make them kind of pets by keeping them closer to the house the kids, they are they become like real pets. pets and so it's sort of added anguish that this that they've adopted this sheep and you kind of like it now you're going to kill it Right. Yeah. That's a lot worse than just mm-hmm. going out into the field and bringing one in. It's right. Like you're, like you're killing your dog. You've brought it into the house. Yeah. Right. It's like it's like being asked to kill your dog. Right. So for so some people who grew up on farms that I've talked to say they always knew that those animals were raised for slaughter. So they might have gotten attached, but they also there was a way they understood yeah. the reality is they're going to be slaughtered. So, um, but but to your point, David. I want you to think, all y'all, think about why might that be the commandment? Bring something into your home and then slaughter it. Like, think about it. Think about what you think that might mean as we go on to see um, what, um, who's got their hand up? Lynn, how's her hand up? And Bert. And Bert. Lynn. Um, And I apologize if this has been discussed before, but when... And I should have asked this last year, the year before. Aaron Aharon is Moses' brother, correct? Correct. And is there any story? Do we know why he is still alive and he did not suffer the fate of the death of the boys at birth? Because the edict was given after he was born. Okay. He's older than Moshe. Okay. He's Moses's older brother. Miriam and, and Aharon are older than Moshe. Thank you. Uh, good question. <laughs> Happy. I feel like <laughs> I should have asked this last year. I was going to ask it this. I hope, I hope I don't know the answer. Okay. Um, Bert. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in Niger in Africa, a couple of days before a Muslim festival where they were killing and eating a goat. And for several days, the streets were filled with pens of goats. Everywhere you went, there were pens of goats just waiting to be purchased and then taken home. So that still exists in some parts of the world. Second thing is a question. The word blemish in Hebrew that's translated, is that clearly physical blemish or Emotion one. I, I know. I was going to say, what other kind of blemish might a baby yeah, lamb have? <laughs> Elsewhere, it's used in terms of people who can go different places 
whether someone has it in 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 the temple, etc. So I'm wondering whether the blemish here is clearly hundred percent. Because there's not another way to determine any other kind of blemish okay. with a lamb. Like like all you can do is check it to see if it has a moon, uh some a defect or something wrong with it. Um uh but and to your point, think about I mean we think this is so weird, but but like you said, it's still happening in many yeah. places. And then you think about think about November. Right? Oh, yeah. Turkeys. Like, come on. Yeah. Like that's not what I think like about once it. upon a <laughs> once upon a time, you everybody would have had a to go get a turkey. Right? And kill it, right? Or think on Friday night in in the shtetl, there were a lot of chickens dying <laughs> on Fridays. <laughs> right? Like right? So because that you you made your most special meal Friday night and you couldn't often afford a chicken, right, for the fan. So, so it, it, it sounds so foreign to us, but if we really think about it, it's not that foreign. It is, however, interesting. Take it and keep it for four days. Then kill it. Why? Why? So, David, you raised it. Any ideas about why we might be asked to bring something into our home and then get attached to it and kill it? Just to create more anguish, I guess. To create more anguish, because it's a Jewish text, right? So why not? It was teaching you that your food has to be killed for you to eat it, has to be respected. We were not allowed to name any animal that we knew was part going to be slaughtered. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and my job a good idea. with my grandmother's farm was to wring the neck of the chicken. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew that that was... What we had to do to eat the meat, it was. But but presumably they can. They're already eating meat. Why take a lamb, right? Sacrifice the duck. Goes back to. Why take it into your house and watch it for four days? Yeah, Lynn, speak. In recalling past Torah study sessions with our Rabbi Amy that these commandments and to put the blood on the door and for four days, these lambs are not quiet creatures and they're bleeding and with B-L-E-A-T-I-N-G, they're making some noise. And as I recall, the Israelites were not supposed to have these animals, that these were special animals for the Egyptians. So this was putting them in a very precarious and dangerous situation. That they had to buy into and do. Gold star for Lynn that she has paid attention over the years in Torah study and makes it redeems my whole life that the, that you all take something from me. Um, so there there was a sheep god of Egypt. If you have bleeding bleating sheep in your backyard, possibly this gets noticed. That the Hebrews have a symbol of, of an Egyptian god bleating in the backyard. And then what happens? They all kill them all at the same time. And whoever's around hears that for sure. Yeah. So it A, puts the Hebrews in a very vulnerable position vis-a-vis the Egyptians. They're Egyptian neighbors. They are advertising having a god of Egypt in the backyard 
and they all kill it at the same time, and the God of Egypt is screaming. This is an an inaction, huh? No, it gets worse. I'm sorry. Now it gets worse. So, and so this is, this is a reflection of what's happening. That the God of the Hebrews, right, is causing the Egyptian population to suffer and is taking on the God of the Egyptians, which is Pharaoh and will ultimately kill it. Ultimately, Yohei Buffet will kill Paro and eat it. No. And not eat it, I hope, but, um, so, okay. So that's, so that's part of, so part, so why, why do that? What's the point of that? Is that some people want to suggest that it's God saying you have to have skin in the game. You have to take steps for your own liberation. You're going to have to take some risks. You're going to have to get comfortable with killing the God of Egypt with which you are so familiar. Because what happens not too much later in the desert when Moshe is a little late coming down the mountain? What happens? They make a a golden calf, right? So Yodhei Vafe understands you need to start, bring that God of Egypt in. Look at it. You are very familiar with Egypt. You're going to have to kill it to be free. To be liberated, you have to kill what has dominated you and has kept you oppressed and enslaved. And you have to take part. You have to participate in your own liberation. And it begins with killing the god of Egypt. They all follow the goats. I'd love to see that midrash. All right. So then you're going to place the the blood on the lintel of the doorpost. So that we get literally when they leave, they are passing through a bloody passageway. Any ideas what that might represent? (laughs) And Melinda's hand shot up. And Melinda? Uh, I have also paid attention to Torah study in years past. (laughs) It's a birth story. Thank you. And the parting of the Red Sea is also a, a birth metaphor. Beautiful. The birth canal. That's what this is. They are being born as a people with this story. So, of course, there's got to be blood. There has to be blood. Um, right? Because the destroyer knows which house is Egyptian and which house is Hebrew because it's sent by Yote Buffet. So it's not like it's a sign for the destroyer. It's a sign to the Israelites. I opt in. Because it's also, you've just killed the God of Egypt and you're going to put its blood on the doorposts. It's, you're now advertising we're one of them. We're, we're with them. The people who just slaughtered, right? A symbol of the God of Egypt, right? Well, there's no turning back. There's beautiful. There's no turning back. If you put the blood on the doorpost, you can't stay. So you, you're A saying, I, I believe we're going to get out of here. Otherwise, why would you do it? Because you can't stay once you do that. Once you say, God of Egypt killer, right? As a sign on your door, you can't stay. There's no turning back. You have now opted in. Is that related to mezuzah? So there are people who want, of course, to relate it to mezuzah. hundred percent. Um, there's one article I read said that there was a tradition of having 
that part of the house be stone. Like that was kind of the solid part of the house. And so the name of the clan would be on the lintel. And so what they're doing is they're covering the name of the clan with the blood saying, it's not we individuals who, who matter. It's we as we, we now are a people and we're a community and we're becoming a community. And so we, they are asked to cover the name on the lintel, which is a lovely interpretation. Um, all right. So in any case, this, this is what, what we get set up as, um, as the first month that with this whole story, this whole craziness. And of course they're gonna leave in this month, right? Okay. So let's look at a little bit of commentary on this fascinating verse. All right. Let's look at Rashi. We always want to go to Rashi, right? Because Rashi is going to really try to explain what, what's going on with anything. And of course, Rashi has a drop. The commentators have a drosh on everything. Like we have commentary on the words this month. Like, like we have commentary on everything. All right. This month, he, meaning God, showed him, meaning Moshe, the moon in the first stage of its renewal. And God said to him, the time when the moon renews itself thus shall be unto you the beginning of the month. This, the translation therefore is, should be, Rashi is saying, this stage of renewal shall be the moment of the beginning of months. Not this month. This stage of Chadash, what's new? Chodesh, month. Chodesh, month, Chadash, new. Chidush, right? So that's what how this should be translated. Remember, there are no vowels in the Torah. So don't read Chodesh. This Chodesh should be the first Chodesh for you among the Chodeshim. Read instead this, what's Chadash, when the moon is new, is to be the beginning of months for you. Every month, because we could call the beginning of the month the full moon. We could call the beginning of the month when it completely wanes. That's when the month begins. We start our lunar months at the this side, the new moon, the the very bare. Actually, it starts right before we can see that sliver. That's the new moon. The dark moon is the new moon. So just right when it's about to, to, to give us that little sliver, that's right before that is the new moon. But you, you can't just discern that. That instruction had to be given, right? That that's when you call the new moon. This time when the moon renews itself, this stage of renewal, but no scriptural verse can lose its literal meaning. God forbid, Rashi says, right? This is spoken in the reference to the month of Nisan. This month shall be the beginning in the order of counting the months so that Iyar shall be called the second, Sivan the third, etc. Okay. Um, the day starts with darkness as well. The day starts with darkness. Correct. So I think this is, I, I never thought about that. That it, it didn't have to be that that's when we count the months of the moon that, that it set that right before that sliver didn't have to, I never thought about it. It didn't have to be, of course it's the new moon. 
Well, but it got to be the new moon because that was what we decided, right? Mm-hmm. The first star for Shabbat is is at night. Right. What my point is, we it could have it could have been any cycle. It could have been any phase of the moon that got decided as that's the new moon. But it never occurred to me. Right. There had to be a decision. Right. So Rashi's pointing out that God is saying, "Look up at the sky, Moshe. This is the moon." That don't say this month that you're in this moon, this part, this phase of the moon is when you count the beginning of the month, right? That this is the moment we get that teaching from God. Okay, so now the Svadimet has some commentary on on this business. All right, and so I'm bringing you Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler on the Svadimet, the Midrash. On the verse that we just read, this month, Chodesh, shall mark for you the beginning of the months, states. So now the Svaramet is talking about the Midrash on our verse. And now he's quoting the Midrash. The Midrash says from Shmot Rabbah, there is no renewal, Chidush, greater than this. There's no renewal greater than this Chodesh business the beginning of the month business. For through the exodus from Egypt, the children of Israel, Israel, the children of Israel were made into truly new creations. When they were chosen to be devotees of the Holy One, their souls were renewed. As our sages of blessed memory said regarding one who joins the people of Israel through religious conversion is just like a child, is like a child just born. Okay. This is the chosen people, that statement, as opposed to the individuals making saying, I will follow you. It's both. It it's God chooses them to, to worship God as God's by taking them out of Egypt to be their God. God chooses them. They have to put the blood on the door and choose to walk out. Right? They they have to opt in, right? Okay. So, um, that is, this is why, says the Svadimet, this is just so, okay. This is why it is written in the Ten Commandments. I am Yudhei Vafei, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage, and not, I Yudhei Vafei am your God who created you. The redemption from Egypt is more essential than creation. Like, wait, what? But it's kind of interesting. It's interesting. What the Svaramet is saying is the the first commandment is I am Yodhei who took you out of Egypt. He's right. Why doesn't it say I'm Yodhei who created you? Therefore, you you should worship me. He's right. It's kind of crazy that the first commandment is I took you out of Egypt. I'm, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. Hence, everything that follows. Okay. Here's his answer. The redemption from Egypt is more essential than creation. Tell me more, Svadimet. In truth, this is the divine will, that the people of Israel will privilege this creation, the recreation post-Egypt, more than the creation of the world, because it is the ultimate purpose. We too need to learn this, for so it was established in the people of Israel who stood at Sinai. That is why it was said to them, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
it is revealed and known before the Holy One that with this recognition of recreation, one is activated far more than from recognition of creation of the world. This is an eternal attribute of the Jew, that she is prepared to self-sacrifice for the divine, knowing that this is the purpose of creation. This attribute was merited through the exodus from Egypt. Therefore, there is renewal, chidush, chodesh, for the children of Israel always. And this is the meaning of this chidush shall mark for you the beginning. Really powerful teaching for me because last week we talked about my conflicted feeling about the word hope. This to me is essential teaching because renewal is absolutely language that I can get behind. That, that, that this idea of renewal, that renewal is not only possible, but is the point of creation. That's its better for me. I don't know why, like, but I just know it in my kishkas that this resonates with me differently. That because we are involved in our own renewal, but we are promised it's part, it's a design of creation. And so what Sadamet is saying is creation itself is, 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 is pointless. The, there has to be meaning to a human life. There has to be meaning to civilization. There has to be meaning for each time. And each time needs its own meaning and its own language for that and its own way of expressing that through art and music and literature and theology and philosophy and all kinds of gorgeousness. Every generation, every time, every phase needs its own renewal to give life and human life meaning. That's the point, not just life, not just creation, but infusing it with meaning. And we are responsible for participating in our own and our people's and the world's renewal. And what, what is, what is put up in the sky is the affirmation that there will be renewal. The moon goes through all of its phases of light and dark and full and big and small and starts small and gets big and goes small again and comes back again. That's the point. Svatimed is saying, it comes back. Chodesh, every month. There's chidush, every month. We are the same. We wax and wane and it changes and there's light and there's dark and so it is. We have to dig in to the opportunity for Chidush. So, so she's going to unpack this. So according to Rashi, God points to the moon, indicating to Moshe when the new moon ought to be sanctified and the beginning of a new month declared. God also set the month of Nisan as the first of the lunar year. Right. So we, we read that in the Svarimet. The Hebrew word Chodesh, month, is explicitly linked here to the word for renewal, Chidush. When the moon renews itself, when it just begins to reappear, then a month begins. The Svaramet takes this linkage for granted when he opens this week's teaching, so much so, in fact, that he inserts interpretation into citation. Purposefully or not, I do not know. So remember, we read that he quotes Shemot Rabbah by saying, um, in the Midrash, this month to y'all, 
right? Ein lachem. There won't be for you chidush acher. There won't be a bigger renewal, a bigger chidush than this. But that's not what the Midrash says. He misquotes the Midrash. The Midrash says chodesh. So Svaramet puts in the word chidush instead of chodesh. Now, is it a scribal error as people are writing down the teaching of this Fatimat? Possibly. But it's clear that he interprets the Midrash to be saying this is all about renewal. Right? The Rebbe consciously or subconsciously imports it to affirm the absolute centrality of Chidush, the moon's renewal, to Chodashim, the system of months. He rereads the opening of the Midrash to assert there is no renewal greater than this renewal. There is nothing quite as remarkable as the disappearance and reappearance of the moon, that monthly wave of light slowly waxing and waning. But why is this phenomenon so significant? What about it is so elemental that it ought to be ground uh, to ground the very first mitzvah? So that's the other thing to notice. This is the first mitzvah. Right. This is this is the first time God says, here's a commandment to all y'all as descendants of Israel, as a people. The first commandment is this. This shall be the first of months to you. Why this? Why is this so important? So the Sfaramet, we just we just read it when we become devotees of the Holy One. The Exodus is not only a story of the redemption of the Jewish people. It is a story of the recreation of the Jewish people when they emerged from the heaviness of physical oppression to the buoyancy of spiritual freedom. When they moved from the dread of slavery toward a horizon of hope, they were radically transfigured. It was as if they were born anew as new souls with refreshing new possibilities. The capa- this capacity to be reborn, to change and grow, to be liberated and elevated ought to be a grounding principle of our very being, says the Rebbe. To be alive as a Jew is to recognize, celebrate, and cultivate our ever-evolving natures. Mordechai Kaplan, right? An evolving religious civilization. Like the shape-shifting moon, we can expand, contract, share light, or grow dim. Like the moon, we can build toward fullness over and over again, no matter how many times we shrink in between. For this reason, the divine disclosed itself at Sinai to the generation of the Exodus, not as the creator of the world, but as the one who makes recreation possible. Boom. This generation that underwent such transformation understood that once in a lifetime creation is far less onerous than the laborious acts of recreation that constitute the task of a lifetime. This sounds like where Mordecai Kaplan got his entire... Preach. Their experience of profound renewal cemented their commitment to it for generations to come, right? We still sit around the Seder table. The God of this Jewish people would need to be the energizing force that activates this continuous, essential enlivening work, renewal. God met the Jewish people with the mitzvah of hachodesh hazeh lachem because the power of chidush was to be their gift and their legacy. Month after month, they and we 
are to bear witness to a cycle of growth and decay and to invest over and over again in the possibility of starting over. There is no renewal greater than belief in renewal itself. Man. This goes right into the Haggadah this year. Right? It has, it's going in mine. (laughs) It has to. Like, this is such gorgeous teaching, like, for me right now. So, for me, the reason I wanted to bring it to you is because I felt like, like I said, this, this language of renewal and her commentary on it and this idea of waxing and waning and all and the shrinkage in between that this was so powerful for me in this moment of our history in in the shadow of the cataclysm of what has happened and and us living in the trying to figure out what to do with it so i decided i wanted to do this teaching with y'all and don't you know right after i decided that here's the interventionist supernatural god i don't believe in working um right after that i had a hartman session with um Dr. Malila Helner Eshed, one of Mark's beloved teachers as well, who I could listen to her read the phone book. Like I, I would, I, I would tear up at her, like reading the phone book. Um, so she, she did a session with us because we want to keep learning together, even though we're finished with our program and we wanted to keep learning with our amazing teachers. So she taught us a shiur, a session based in poetry for this moment in Israel. Like what the response of folk through poetry. Poetry that's being resurrected, like Leah Goldberg, like some of these amazing, she wrote a poem called The Day After. So we studied that. That was really intense. Um, And then Malila brought a poem that was written by a colleague of hers who teaches at a yeshiva and not a liberal pluralistic yeshiva, a regular yeshiva. So he's he's a yeshiva bucher, right, who teaches at yeshiva. Like, so he's a orthodox, modern orthodox not black hat, but, you know, orthodox. And he had a poem that he wrote for now, for, for what we're living through now as the Jewish people, and it was published in Haaretz. And he gave a shiur, he gave a lesson that Malila heard based on this poem. So I'm going to hand out this poem, and we're going to look at it together. And so she taught this poem as part of the shiur she did with us. Based on the shiur she heard, from Rav Elchanan Mir that was published in Haaretz. And it was right after I studied this piece of the Svarimet. I swear, like it was like, whoa, maybe I need to look at my theology. Achshav, kmo avir l'nshima, nachnu tzrichim toran chadasha. Achshav betoch avir shenigmar beatzavar shenimchak אנחנו צריכים משנה חדשה וגמרה חדשה וקבלה חדשה ועליות נשמה חדשות. Now, like air to breathe, we need a new Torah. Now, in this stifled breath and hacked neck, we need a new Mishnah, a new Gemara, a new Kabbalah, a new mystical ascents. And in all the brokenness and salt and ruin, now a new Hasidism, a new Zionism, a new Rav Kook, and a new Brenner, a new Leah Goldberg, a new Yahweh Da'at, a new art and new poetry and new literature and new cinema 
and new ancient words and new ancient souls from the treasure of souls and new love out of the terrible weeping. For we have all been flooded by the rivers of Re'im and Be'eri, and we have in us no mountain, and there are no more tablets, and we have no Moses, and we have no strength, and into our hands everything now has been given. Right. <laughs> by someone whose life is about studying Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, Kabbalah, and goes to Israeli cinema and reads literature. It doesn't mean get rid of the old. That's not what he's saying. And I listened to some of his shiur, but it was in Hebrew and he speaks very quickly, so I got about a third of it. Um, that's not what he's saying. He's saying each generation has its response the Torah of its time. We have Torah. Then we have the oral Torah, which is the Gemara. We have Mishnah. We have all of these responses. Hasidism was a response to what was happening, to pogroms, you know, to all of those things. Zionism was a response to the cataclysms that were happening in Europe, right? The Kabbalah was a response to the Spanish Inquisition. So every time there has been a crisis, a catharsis for the Jewish people. There has been a renewal. Rav Cook is writing after the Shoah. Art and poetry is always, literature is always how we respond to what's happening. But the literature of one time is Kabbalah and Mishnah. Now we have in the modern period different kinds of literature and different kind of art and different kind of poetry. This yeshiva teacher who lives a life of Torah, says we have no mountain and we have no Moses. It's on us. This is a man of deep faith, a man who looks to these texts, to these teachings and says, there's no Moshe. And there are no luchot. There are no tablets. It's on us. It's in our hands to do kiddush. That's his language. Chadasha, Chadasha, Kabbalah, Chadasha, Mishnah, Chadasha. The same language of the Sfat Emet. They're saying that's what's essential. And Lord God, help us. We have got to find what it's going to take for us to have the energy, the kayach, the imagination, the energy, the strength, the creativity to develop something that is chadash for our time. What is the chidush that the Jewish people, what he said in his shiur, in his lecture was, what is the Torah that is now in our hands that only we can help be revealed? There is no Moshe. There's no Sinai now. It's not going to come from somewhere else. Revelation is not going to come from somewhere else. It's going to come from us. Now, of course, what he means is we stand on these to draw on these as inspiration for what is going to be revealed by us in our time. It, these are not irrelevant. It doesn't go away. He's going to study the same Mishnah and the same Gemara tomorrow with his students. 
all day, every day. But he published this in Haaretz, people. He came out publicly with this poem to say, and we must do the work of Chidush. His his concern is let's not get stuck in all of this. We need a new Torah for now. My concern is that my Jews don't know enough of this to have what to draw on for a chidush for our time. Y'all do, because you sit here every week, and I love that. But I worry for us as a people. Where will where will the the material be for us to renew and recreate if we're not in touch with the teachings of our people? of the generations of our people. And I include myself in someone who doesn't know nearly what generations right before me cared about and studied and knew. I I have to just keep digging in with you who are ready to drink from the fountain of Torah. That That's what we can do in this room. That's what we can do. All of you listening to the podcast regularly, that's what... That's what we can do. And we get inspiration from cinema and art and literature and other places. So we have to find the commitment and the, and the, the, the strength and the willingness to devote ourselves to what it's going to take to have what with to recreate for our time. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.